In our last session, we began examining the re events of the rapture as described in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4. In this session, we'll finish by addressing the events in verse 17. And the chart for this is number four, the events of the rapture. Let's begin by reading the passage. 1 Thessalonians, let's, chapter 4, let's spread it out a little bit. Let's start in verse 15, 15 to 18. Who has it? Dennis, good. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So verse 17 begins, then we who are alive and remain. I've made the point that all these separate events take place in the blink of an eye. My personal hope, however, is that in our resurrected, glorified state, time will become as relative for us as it is to the Godhead. I don't want to miss this. This is going to be good. This will be a glorious astounding event that the believer will wish to savor. Believers on this fallen earth have spent the last 2,000 years longing for the day we will at last see our Lord, as Paul puts it, face to face. Now, I know we have eternity to do that. But that nothing will replace that first moment when we see that he not, looks nothing like what, how the artists have painted him. Please turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, first extant letter, he offers us a detailed treatise on the resurrection process specifically of the dead, but which also applies to those still alive when Christ comes, because in it he addresses the difference between the earthly bodies with which we are born, the natural bodies, these bodies, and the glorified bodies in which we will spend eternity with the Lord. Can we have number five on the screen, please? I've included a chart for the various resurrections during the eschaton, beginning with Christ and those that, that took place in Jerusalem at his resurrection. Now, you'll notice, says the holy ones in Jerusalem, 
at the very at the far left at the same time we don't have time to delve deeply into the challenges of the Matthew passage from which we get the narrative of the opening of the tombs at Christ's death Matthew 27 51 to 53 that narrative speaks of the dead rising at Christ's resurrection. We don't have the time because it's a controversial text. It raises more questions than it answers. But I did want to point out that the punctuation is critical to understanding and accepting what is described. The NASB is not bad. The original, I'm sorry, Renee, the original NIV is worst. The ESV is best in describing that the tombs being broken open at the death of Jesus, the, the Christ died, if you, if you read that passage quickly or in a, or in a version that, where the punctuation isn't as clear, it's real easy to read it, read that it's saying, at Christ's death, certain dead in Jerusalem were raised from the dead and walked out of the tombs. If you look closely, that's not what it's saying. The tombs were opened at his death. They did not come out until after his resurrection. And this has always bothered me because Paul says Christ was the first fruits. He was the first. We are raised, we will be raised from the dead because he was raised. Only because he was raised. He was the first that set the pattern. The pattern of resurrection was set by Christ. Well, then how come these guys were raised from the dead before he even went into the tomb? Well, they, did, they weren't. So, in other words... Just as with Jesus, the tombs were opened not to let out the dead immediately, but to let in any witnesses. Admittedly, in its strangeness, however, it's a Melchizedek moment. The inhabitants did not emerge from their tombs until after Christ Jesus had been raised. And the punctuation is important in understanding that. So, let's read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 40 to 44. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. <clears throat> so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. 
If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Okay, so that's regarding the difference between our earthly body and our glorified body. Now, just a note, the best way to understand, you read that, and of course, your mind, you think, sown, oh, okay, sown, sown into the ground, into the grave. That's really not the way to, to uh, interpret that. The, the Greek spero, translated sown in this context, is describing really the totality of a life from birth to death. So it's, it's more you're sown onto this earth, and then you live your life. That's, that's really the picture here, not being sown into the grave. Now, let's read verses 50 to 53 of the same chapter. For I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. Can we be back to number four, Zeb? Chart four. No one can say with certainty what he or she will look like after the rapture. Thank you. Now you can go have a smoke. <laughs> Sorry, I slipped back to my Navy days there for a minute. Smoke them if you got them. But God's word tells us that it will be a body made for eternity, imperishable. It will possess a new and improved glory. He makes it clear, we have a glory now. But compared to that glory, poof. Nothing. And in place of weakness, it will possess a new power. I'm interested to see what that'll look like. Power. We will have power. Dunamas. Instead of being a natural, fleshly body, it will be a spiritual body. That is, we are born into this world in a condition for this world this temporal world, natural, sensual, fleshly and fleshy. At the rapture event, we, living or dead, will become something else, pneumaticon, of the spirit. That is, we will now be changed into a form suitable not just for eternity, that is, immortal, but suitable for living in the presence of a holy God without being instantly vaporized by His holiness. We cannot live with God in our present state. He would not permit it. Even as believers, even with the Spirit inside of us, we're flesh, fleshly, 
We stray, as the psalmist made clear. We blow it. We have to be reeled back in from time to time. God cannot permit that in his home. So we have to be changed. Turn please to Philippians chapter 3. But our citizenship is hang in on, heaven. Hang on a minute. Oh. I know it's in here somewhere. Philippians 3, 20. Okay. Take her away. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, nothing wrong with that version, but I love the NASB says, will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We are going to be like him. But how that passage comes alive when we place it, when we perceive it from an eschatological perspective. When we lift it out of our experience here and think it, place it in the final days. Christ in this moment, in not this, but even at the rapture, Christ is not yet enthroned upon his kingdom or over his kingdom. That must wait for the end of the tribulation. Nonetheless, during the rapture event, he is already beginning to reveal some of the power he will hold then. Quote, the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. We learn from Jesus himself the nature of our glorified body. From Luke 24, we learn that the, his body was material and could consume food. He invited Thomas to touch him, feel him. Thomas didn't. I wouldn't have either. <laughs> but he says, yeah, yeah, see, there's a hole there. He consumed food, verses 39 to 43. Yet it was not bound by the laws of nature, verse 31, 36 to 37. Now, we learn from the road to Emmaus narrative that Jesus was not immediately recognizable to the two disciples, but that their inability to recognize him had more to do with their eyes being prevented, either by Christ Jesus himself or by God the Father or the Spirit, prevented from recognizing him. I think so they were their sight of Christ was altered. He was not. At one point, when that prevent, preventative hold was lifted, <clears throat> then they saw it was him. There's pretty good evidence that we will be recognizable in our new bodies. 
shucks. In John's gospel, we learn that Christ's body was not pure spirit. He wasn't a glowing orb as an apparition, but still possessed a level of physicality. John 20, 26 to 27. <clears throat> M.R. Vincent writes this. The expression natural body signifies an organism animated by a soul. That phase of the immaterial principle in man which is more nearly allied to the flesh and which characterizes the man as a mortal creature, while spirit is that phase which looks Godward and characterizes him as related to God. Now, as I said, in this handout today, I present a different position on that, a different opinion by Wayne Grudem. You, of course, are free to reach your own conclusion regarding soul and spirit. I was amused after sending the notes to the pastors, which included Gary Crandall. He wrote back, which, which included that handout, and he wrote back, uh, well, I'm glad to see that Grudem agrees with me. In other words, he was saying, I don't agree with you. <coughs> Fair enough. So as Vincent points out, although the two are easily confused, sometimes, and as Grudem points out, they're easily interchangeable. They are interchanged. Sometimes it's spirit, sometimes it's soul. I contend that the soul and the spirit are not always synonymous. The human soul is related to the material body and is often used to refer to the totality of the being including material body and immaterial spirit aspects. It, Genesis 2.7 speaks of a living being. That's the word for soul. Paradoxically, however, the soul is also distinct from the body and can exist without it. That's what happens when we die. The body stays here, somewhere, in whatever state. The soul leaves, and if you're a child of God, then you go to be with Christ. At death, the soul detaches from the body. The body, the material portion, remains on earth, while that body's soul goes to be with the Lord, Genesis 35, 18. If one has already passed away prior to the resurrection, the believer is not just brought back to life, but is, as it were, put back together again. The body and soul are reunited in what is now a new and glorified state. I mean, I want to watch this. I, I want to see this. I want to absorb it. Verse 17 continues, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. How I wish that this took longer than the blink of an eye. Perhaps for us it will. And why I hope that once we are in our new glorified bodies, we'll gain some of that heavenly perspective on events in which time can either stand still or leap ahead at will. For I'd like to savor this moment. Can you imagine anything sweeter than rising in, into the air to meet our Savior and Lord? There he is waiting for us. <clears throat> 
we look up and there he is. I, I want time to slow down while that happens. First, however, we must join the company of the redeemed. Here again, the imagination stumbles in trying to picture this moment. The dead will rise first. Those still alive will follow. We assume from the text that the dead emerge from the grave or from being reconstituted, already changed. The apostle writes, quote, the dead will be raised imperishable. That is below ground, perishable. Above ground, imperishable. We also assume that those not asleep, those still alive, will be changed either immediately or at least prior to rising into the presence of Christ because the same rules apply. Christ is no longer the Jesus of Nazareth walking the earth. His disciples living with him day in and day out could they could smell his sweat. They could watch him eat. They could feel his arm around them. He could, they could hear his voice. They could, he was just a man at the moment. I mean, he, to their eyes, he was a man. Same as them, even though he was the God-man. That is no longer... He's now in his glorified state. I don't, I'm guessing you don't sweat in heaven. No gymnasiums, that'll be good. It sounds like you can eat, though. That sounds good. That sounds good, too. Yeah. So we have to be changed before we get to him. We find the Greek for our word rapture beneath the phrase, quote, shall be caught up, end quote. The verb, I have to do this in slow motion, harpa ges ometha. Write that down, there'll be a test. Meaning to snatch away, take away, seize. Followed by the adverb hama, translated together, meaning at the same time or at once. We will be caught up together. We'll be, they'll come out of the ground, we'll be on the ground, we'll be changed. We go up together. We take this to mean that all believers, dead or alive, at the same time will rise into the sky and clouds toward our awaiting Lord. My personal picture of Christ Jesus in this moment is of him as a symphony conductor. Last week we talked about the, the sounds, the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. That's what comes down toward us. And Christ is orchestrating this entire supernatural phenomenon. He's in charge. I picture the Lord accompanied by the archangel and whomever is playing the trumpet of God. Might it be God the Father himself? I doubt it. 
descending to Earth's environment, environs. They position themselves and draw breath. Then at the downbeat of Christ's shout, he raises his arms to draw out the dead from the tombs. I'd like to see that too. And all believers from around the globe, everyone up to him. That'll be interesting, won't it? This earth is round as I understand it. Yet everyone from all over the world will be raised and go up to him. Interesting. You didn't think everything was going to be answered in this class, did you? Now, why does this happen? To meet the Lord in the air, verse 17. We have a habit of either spiritualizing certain statements in God's word or interpreting them from a cold, earthly perspective. I love it when portions of God's word are illuminated with fresh light by other portions. Turn, please, to the story of the raising of Lazarus from the tomb in John 11. John 11. This event was different from the other resurrections we see in the eschaton because while Lazarus was indeed brought back to life, he was raised to the same body in which he died. This was not a glorified resurrection. He certainly died again subsequently. It's all right, guys, sit down. I'm, I'm going to read it. But thank you anyway. Once again, we tend to read this passage beginning with verse 21 in light of the ultimate salvation we have by faith in Christ Jesus. Because we believe we will have eternal life in him. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course, it's true. But as I read this, notice how Martha acknowledges the general resurrection of the dead in which most Jews believed, all except for the Sadducees. But watch how Jesus clarifies for her that there will be another resurrection in which some will be dead and some will be alive. That is, the rapture. So John 11, beginning with verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. What's that? Again. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's the first batch, the rupture. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's the second group at the rapture. Do you believe this, he asked her. 
She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. <clears throat> In that reassuring, victorious statement, we can see the immediate moment regarding Martha's dead brother. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. We can see the promise of eternal life for all who believe. We can see hints of the rapture. The dead will live and those who, the dead will live and those who live will never die. But we also see Jesus the Christ revealing his lordship over all. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. As if he's saying, this life we're talking about here, Martha, I'm the one making it all possible. And there will come a day when I personally will come to conduct you into that life. Martha, Mary, Lazarus, they'll be there. Verse 17 closes. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Here's the best news of all. And the best part of the rapture event. The Thessalonian passage ends with verse 18. Therefore comfort one another with these words. The Thessalonians needed comforting. They had it wrong. They were not thinking correctly about this so they needed the comfort of this but we do too christians and unbelievers alike commonly speak of going to heaven as if the place of our eternity is what is important that's not true it's not the place it's the company from the rapture on, we will always be with the Lord. Wherever he is, there we will be. We will be with him. In biblical language, we, we have a, a, a small perception with some words, even small words like with. Biblically, we will be with him not just around him not just in the same general area will be with him the way we are now spiritually then we will face to face reality what makes heaven paradise is not the environment the climate the lack of gymnasiums the gold-paved streets are the accommodations. What makes heaven paradise is that it is the home of the Lord God and his Christ, our Savior. Now, I've left a fair amount of time for any questions, any thoughts, either from the session or the handout or whatever. While, we're, while you're formulating and while we're waiting, let me reiterate, please, I'm on my knees, please. If you intend to finish this class, stay with us. If you're gone, if you go somewhere, 
get the notes, listen to the audios, whatever, but stay with us because it's going to get really... As we dip our toe next week into the rapture, or I'm sorry, the tribulation, hang on. Yeah, Jim. Um, earlier you were speaking about uh, coming into the presence of Jesus, the glorified Jesus. We couldn't do that in an unredeemed body. Right. Um, and it made me think of Psalm 5, 4 and 5, 5. <clears throat> which says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. It just, it just reinforced the notion that um, he can't God do does not delight in evil yeah. or unrighteousness or rebellion. And so beings were in fallen bodies we have to be changed to be in his presence so just a thought and and we have to take serious like the song we sang today holy 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 that means something it's not just a song it's not just words in the bible it means something he is not just holy he is three times holy we can't imagine how holy he is and we cannot live with him in our present state it just can't be Anything else? Yeah. You know. See, Greg's busy formulating his question that he's going to hit me with at, right at 1130. <laughs> yeah. Do you have an opinion on we're kind of in the timeline the rapture will take place in comparison to the Ezekiel War? I think it's like 38 they refer to it as. Do you think those... The Ezekiel War? Ezekiel 38 War, something like that? It's like the where Magog and Gog come down and... Oh, I love these questions that leap ahead. Uh, there are... Well, let me just speak in general terms. The raptures before anything that Ezekiel spoke of. Because Ezekiel... Daniel, Revelation, and a number of other passages that paint a picture of the tribulation, the events of the tribulation. The rapture is before that. There are, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm, but there are two wars that take place post-tribulation. The first is Armageddon, what we call Armageddon, which is a bit of a misnomer. But in any case, that's Armageddon. Jesus opens his mouth and it's done. And then there's another, it's easy to mix it up with Armageddon, but there's a second. At Armageddon, after Armageddon, Satan is thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. For the, see, I'm giving it away. That's it. That's just for the millennium. At the end of the millennium, and I, 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 let's see. I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, give, give me that that envelope. That see, I after the first session. I always bring some cheat sheets with me 
so I remember correctly. There's a last battle after the end of the millennium. And what I love is that Satan, the Bible describes Satan gathering his troops. It says, okay, we're going to get him. Millions, millions of people, soldiers. And of course, even if the rapture happens tomorrow, imagine the weaponry available over more than a thousand years hence. And at that last battle, remember, remember in, uh, I think it's in uh, Zechariah, where it talks about the river going out and going dry or something, or the land split and the river goes out. I, I'm, I may be wrong, but anyway, there's a passage that speaks to that. Well, there's a practical reason for that. That's so that Satan's armies can get from one place to the next. And Satan, well, his disciples, he's down in the abyss. But after he's released, he gathers his army together, millions of soldiers, and they say, okay, here we go. The final last battle. Fire comes down from heaven, boop, done. Now he knows that's going to happen. He's not stupid. So... Ezekiel is speaking of one or both of those, one, one or each of those, and I'm not sure at this point. I will be when we get there. That's, that's down the road here. We're, we're over here. That's over here. But yeah, there's two, two battles, that, and neither really takes place. The first one at Armageddon, Christ opens his mouth, and the sword of his word. Remember, God is a speaking God. He, that's all he has to do. In the Bible, it's called a sword, but it's just the sword of his word. And the word he speaks a word, and war's done. Anything else? See now you got me in the habit of leaving ten minutes, and now we got, now we got to fill it up. Yeah, Dan. I don't know why she's got a look of terror on her face. <laughs> what did you mean by a Melchizedek moment? <laughs> well, we've been going through Hebrews, and obviously mentioned the time. Don't get me started, right? <laughs> Melchizedek's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He, yeah, it starts out in Genesis, the original story in Genesis, but the writer to the Hebrews uses him as a, and that's, that's why I remember from our Hebrew study, we, we, he's a type of Christ because he's, He's both king and priest. And by Jewish law, of course, he predates. Melchizedek predates Jewish law. But in Jewish law, you could not have, you could not be a priest and a king. That's what got Saul into trouble. He tried to be priest and says, okay, you're out of here. Um, 
I call it a Melchizedek moment because it's just kind of dropped in there, like Melchizedek, Melchizedek drops into, you know, all of a sudden, here's this guy. Who's he? Where does he come from? That's the point. He had no lineage. We don't know who he was. We don't know if he was from a kingly or a priestly line, whatever. We don't really know anything about him. He was the king priest of Jerusalem, what would become Jerusalem. And so it, he's just mysteriously dropped in, and that's the way I feel about that passage in Matthew. Is it Matthew? Matthew. Where it talks about, and the, the tombs were opened, and I thought, whoa, where did this come from? Where, why is this? And, I, and immediately you start thinking, well, it says that people saw them, they recognized them. Were they, did they emerge glorified or not? We're not really sure. I've included them on the timeline, assuming that they were, but, in that, but it's Old Testament saints in Jerusalem where their tombs were opened, but they had to wait for Christ to be raised from the dead before they could come out. And that's kind of a Melchizedek moment to me. It's mysterious. It's weird. And commentators might address it, but they kind of scratch their heads and they don't really agree on it. It's, it's, it's just weird, which makes it interesting. Well, then let's let you out early. Go out to the playground. Father God, we thank you for this time, this blessing to open your word, gather around it, and study it. We thank you for this book we call the Bible, your holy scripture. It is filled with you. It is filled beginning to end with Christ Jesus. And it is translated for us by your Spirit. We thank you for that. And I pray that after each time we do this, we will leave knowing you better than we did coming in. You, your ways, your truths. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.